Podcast from political blog The Groucho Tendency. Hello, dear listener, we are back. You may be wondering where we've been, what we've been doing, how we've been occupying ourselves for the last, well, nine months, effectively. It is now November. The last time we spoke to you was in February. It is worth reflecting, of course, that we've had three different prime ministers since then, innumerable different chancellors, so many cabinet reshuffles that I can't even keep track of them anymore. We've had an entire premiership, an entire era, the shortest ever premiership in British politics that, although we'll be discussing the consequences of it, Liz Truss is going to get one mention on this podcast, and that was it. (laughs) Just a a quick note before we do start, um, please do subscribe if you're interested in the podcast, pass it on to your friends, Uh, there seems to be a small but interesting community in what we have to say, but uh, as ever, we're grateful for your company, and we look forward to... You'll come me up next half hour, 40 minutes or so. Hello and welcome to GMT, the politics podcast from the Groucho Tendency. My name is Mike Indian, and as you can hear from the background noise, I'm once again in the pub, and I am joined now by the soon-to-be-maritally unavailable soothsayer of Hampstead Heath, a man who spends his time wandering around woods propositioning young women with marriage. It is, of course, the recently engaged Mr. Liam Kay. Thank you very much, Mike. And I should point out for the record, it's I've only ever done it once. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, in sermon at presses, Liam is no longer on the market. He is engaged. He is... uh, So congratulations, I should say, for that at the top of the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. um, I can can only say it's... um, it feels probably as stressful as setting up a 50-day government as <laughs> it is setting 44. up a wedding. 44. 44. Forty-four. It's got two dimensions then. I've given her too much credit. You've given her too much credit as well. <laughs> Liam, we all hope your marriage lasts longer than the Trust Premiership. Or so do I. So do I. I hope it lasts longer than any, you know, post-prodestereal premiership that goes. But um, on more serious notes, uh, we're back and... Well, there's a lot to talk about. We're not going to spend the time filling in the gaps around um, what's happened since we last spoke to you. You'll probably, you know, unless you've been living under a rock, you'll be aware of what's happened. But we have a new Prime Minister. We have US midterm results to discuss, historic midterm results to discuss. We have something happening to everyone's favourite whinge platform, Twitter. And of course, unless you are, like me, completely uninterested in sport, we also have the World Cup. So, Liam, we are going to start off by talking about the UK freshly minted sort of runner-up Prime Minister, the Constellation Prize, the Human Constellation Prize that is the MP for Richmond, North Yorkshire, the Right Honourable Richard Sunak MP. Um, your thoughts so far on the fledgling Sunak Premiership? Well, I mean, um, I should point out he's my grandmother's MP, which I always, always, think, always think is good information. Um, she likes him a lot. But um, I, think, I think Sunak was the right choice in the summer. I think he was the right choice now at an emergency. I think it, 
it's been a I mean he was handed such a bonfire that <laughs> is that what we're calling it now a bonfire I I think it's I mean Liz Trust kept throwing things onto it so I mean it's <laughs> petrol I don't think there's That's anything tough. else you can call it maybe a bin fire if you're, <laughs> if you're an urban dweller but I'm going to go with a bonfire because it's a little bit more scenic so um, <laughs> or apt as it's November as well yes exactly exactly more more apt and she's been thrown on it herself so <laughs> it's it's like if you were going to be proven right which I think Rishi Suna has been I think we can all agree <laughs> that he's been proved completely right with what would happen with the Trust Premiership um, it's probably the worst time to take over after somebody's made the situation immensely worse um, I think putting that to one side it's a very difficult situation there have been a decent number of missteps at the moment I mean just a few yes I mean now, cabinet minister management not been at its best it's fair to say so I'm brave of no. Kronos's owner Gavin Williamson I mean he's lost he's lost one cabinet minister and arguably shouldn't have uh, should maybe have doubled his number but um, he's got an immigration crisis he's got a financial crisis he's got tax rises on top of the highest tax base since uh, Kremlin Attlee was in power he's got um, the necessity of probably making cuts to budget given it's a Tory government um, he's got a public that does not in any way want any public uh, sector cuts um, which we, we are, but we are going to get these aren't we we are seeing yes. well, so when we say we talk, so just for context we're recording this before the kind of big so, so we've, we've had Jeremy Hunt come in as Chancellor he's unwound a lot of the um, the tax cuts that Kwasi Kwarteng and the Trust put in place yeah interestingly even they Kwarteng and Trust didn't touch the freezing of tax thresholds which is the tax bounds which is actually going to be the big revenue raiser for the Treasury they didn't touch those as well but that's, I think that's a side point and now we're talking about a, a package of spending cuts and tax rises that's going to come in later this week so I'm not going to touch on the detail of that yeah but in your mind is this package justified? Is it? Is it something that the Chancellor should be doing at this point in time? And the Prime Minister, well, who used to be the Chancellor, he's borrowing. This is paper. I think, maybe somewhat controversially, I think it's the only option available. And I, I, I say that on the basis that I think COVID necessitated such a huge spend by the government. Um, it was a government that. You know, regardless of what you think about the the government sort of spending plans before COVID, it necessitated such a huge amount of spending. But which was right I, at the time, wasn't it? it, it no, it was completely right. It was completely every, right. Every major economy did a yeah. major stimulus package, major economic support package during the pandemic. And there's the expectation that with the markets that there needs to be restrained spending afterwards, that there needs to be a little bit of a 
you know, an acknowledgement that you spent a lot of money, therefore you do need to tighten belts a little bit. Any government would have this this issue. It's not easy to borrow money at the moment, and it's not easy to run a, a deficit. So that does need to be corrected. They've been dealt a terrible hand by a prime minister who did not understand that, and which is why she's the shortest reigning prime minister of all time. Um, so it's worth, it's worth reflecting that the, the, a lot of people here talk about this fiscal black hole that the government's yeah. got to fill. 40 billion, 50 billion pounds, perhaps as much as 60. 60, 60, yeah. Charles Eifstein, Resolution Foundation, have said that a good chunk of this is caused by weaker than expected growth. Now, that seems to me to be a hallmark of conservative economic policies going back as far as 2010, you know, underinvestment that stifled off growth. We didn't spend during the recession, you know, the after of the recession in the early 2010s, and now we're going back to Osborne on again. Yes, I completely agree. I mean, it's one of those... It's one of the most bizarre things is you spend your way out of recessions and in the good times you can you can you can increase taxes, you can take those cuts to what departments will be doing. At a time when people need government is not a time to cut government. Increase it increases poverty, reduces your growth as you know prospects. Um, and it was it was misguided at the time. People said it was misguided at the time. It has also left Sunak and Hunt in an incredibly tricky situation that the fat has been trimmed. Like, they're going to be talking about how you can... Essentially, they're going to be choosing who to impoverish. Um, they... I mean, they're sensibly, I think, going to be probably not affecting the very poorest in society but I think the next step up will be very heavily hit and that means in practice that we are expecting benefits and pensions to rise in line with inflation which at the moment means 10%, 11% which seems entirely correct and and minimum wage is probably likely to increase as well which is again good for the government because that's an indirect form of taxing for revenue rising as well actually it's a tax on employers not a tax on people but it raises revenue for the government as a result of that Interestingly, there are areas of wasteful government spending, I would submit, because of, say, high wage, low wage growth and high rent increases, the housing benefit bill is going to hit £23 billion at this moment, which effectively is the government subsidising private landlords. Now, yeah. if the Tories had built social housing over the last 10 years, which would have been a good investment, that would be a lot lower, I would say. It would, it would. It's not something you can do anything about now, but it's definitely something that the future Labour government... The future Labour the government, the Keir Starmer government, yes. I, I, I would I would be prepared to put a fiver on it at this moment. Are we thinking it's going to be a Labour so, government? Yes. I think we agree on that. Yeah, yes. I think we both, not just wishful thinking on my part, or maybe it is, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think at this stage, if you lost this election, I think you have to question whether where Labour goes from here. But There's an extra like, price, yeah. It's, it's, that's a it, podcast. But, I mean, social housing... Like should have been built. Um, I mean, there's so many mistakes that have been made. I mean, I quite why uh, energy and gas storage um, capacity was sold off and dismantled prior to the current crisis. I have absolutely no idea. It was notably Liz Truss who signed off on it. She got a second mention there. 
Oh, probably fish is better. She's on fish now. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot we could say about this trust, but you know. I mean, the, the long list of failures to short, the, the short termism of the current government and the lack of long term thinking has been repeatedly there. And, you know, I mean, I think it's safe to say neither me or nor you are. Conservative voters, Conservative supporters. I mean, I can't imagine if you've got that um, view from, but it's interesting, isn't it? So I think actually the point you make there about yeah. you know the selling off of stuff. I mean, one thing that worries me about this, and I think you know we can, we can lambast trust, but actually we also have to look at Sunak as well. Sunak and Hunt. What we have, interesting, you have now between Sunak, Hunt, and the Treasury is an alignment on thinking. All three men subscribe to a certain view. I think it's more commonly termed as sound money, and there's an excellent article yeah. by Sir Nicholas. Lord McPherson, the former Treasury Permanent Secretary in the Financial Times, which I partly recommend everyone read, which talks about what sound money is. Now, obviously, the Treasury, Treasury is a president, economic department and a spending department. Now, the reason I think that this has hampered the UK economy is that economic growth and spending, they're, they're fundamentally sort of pulling in two different directions. The Treasury is often, I think, more concerned with saving money than it is about economic growth. And actually, it's happy to have reasonable growth at the time, but actually, low capital spending, gradually revenue spending in areas has meant that over the last decade or so, the last 15 years, since 2008, Blair left office, we've had very low productivity growth in this country. And that's meant that whilst our country may have grown as a productive economy, we've actually contracted, we produce less per person than we did before. And as a result, what we do as an economy overall is less valuable. At the same time, we've taken on a huge amount of debt that we have to try and deal with at some point in the next 50 years or so. I, I disagree on the Treasury split. Ooh. And I'll, I'll very briefly tell you the reason why. Go on, go on. I'll very briefly tell you the reason why. I don't think the problem is the fact that the Treasury oversees both. I think both should work interlocking anyway. And I think... Yes. But equally, I don't think as many other countries have as much power to an economic... Like, to minute... Secretaries of State in the UK have a lot more power than a lot of other ministers in other countries. And, you know, I think within the British context, I think it makes complete sense to have a, a Treasury that acts as a counterweight to the Prime Minister a lot of the time. However, I think the problem is one of mindset. And it is very difficult for the Conservatives to be complaining about a treasury dogma in which they prioritise savings over growth when that has exactly been government policy over the last 12 years. And it has been over savings over growth. It has been over short-termism over long-term investment. And if they have managed to so completely... I mean, the, tre the idea of the, tre the Treasury has been there for 300, 400, 500, 
centuries. It has been there for centuries. I think it's other the Carson, yeah. yeah, other governments have grown and managed to achieve growth and are not overspent. Just because this one hasn't does not mean that the Treasury itself is a defunct idea. It is merely that this government is not good enough on the finances, it's not good enough on the economics, it's a short-termist government. A passionate defence there of HM Treasury <laughs> by Liam. Um, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to discuss the US midterms. Welcome back. So, Liam, um, we've just had, a week before we record this, the US midterm elections. Now, I suspect that our listeners are like us, they're political junkies, they are fascinated by it as well. But the US midterms are a consequential set of elections, it's fair to say. I mean, you could argue, you know, the, 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 the merits of having this halfway through a presidential term, but clearly, you know, it's envisaged. Um, what are your overall thoughts, kind of the big, the big picture emerging? But bear in mind that at this point in time, we don't have the full picture, but it's almost done. I genuinely think, I mean, it has been a bad set of results for the Republicans. I think unexpectedly so. I mean. This is this is always this is always the thing is like I'm not sure I'm not so sure it was unexpected. I think it was unexpected. I think it was unexpected if you listen to the Republican Party. If if you got the general like I'm going to push back on this, I'm sorry. Yes. So every, okay, there is like, the accepted narrative, and I say, and this, is, this is just me playing devil's advocate here, is that if you're the incumbent president, if you're Joseph Biden, yeah, and you have, you know, he has a fairly low favorability rating, most, most presidential midterms, presidents are far better favorability than Biden have done much worse in midterms than Biden's done now. So the myth is that the midterms are a, well, the, the narrative is that the, 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 um, the midterms are a referendum on the presidency. Is that what you're saying is true? I don't think it is this time. I don't think okay. it is. And why is I think I think it has been a referendum on, well, there's about three different things affecting this. One has been a referendum on the economy, the current democratic leadership, uh, hence why the Democrats haven't very comfortably obliterated anything. Um, you know, it's been very... I mean, the results, I, wouldn't, I would not style them as a success for the Democrats. They probably will still lose the House. Yeah. They retain the Senate. They had both of them before. Losing something I don't think is ever a good result. Joe They're Biden is still not a popular president. No. The other two things at play, though, are very much the Republicans making... Like essentially, Donald, Donald Trump is a factor on his own. We'll come to him probably in a second. But the other one is um, Roe v. Wade, and Ooh. like which is which was the just for those who aren't sure is the was the constitutional um, 
right to uh, Not abortion. constitutional right. Not constitutional. The right. nationwide right to abortion that was set by a Supreme Court case of Roe v. Wade yeah. that was overturned by the new Conservative majority on the US Supreme Court uh, earlier last year, I believe, wasn't it? Earlier this year. Earlier this year, goodness me. Yeah. Time does pass quickly. Earlier this year. I mean, three months before the midterms, essentially. Early three months ago. I, uh, yeah. I feel like I've aged dog years since then. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, been, there's been like... There's well, been we're a third prime minister since. There's been a lot. So there's like, been a lot, yeah. Let's skip that. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's such a major decision that, you know, essentially what the Republicans did was they managed to get a base that was disappointed with its own president and rile it up and encourage it to go out and vote. Mm. And this is this is why they're getting the results that they are doing. And we see and, and, we, and, we, and we see this in states where gubernatorial candidates, governor candidates ran on a platform pledging to enshrine the right to abortion at the state level, don't we? Yeah, I mean, every single... Gretchen Whitmer being an obvious example. Yeah, and every single Trump candidate, almost. Um, I mean, we'll come to him in a second. <laughs> feels like feels feels like you're going for your prostate exam just sort of coming I know, I know, I know. He, he kind of feels like that as well, to be fair. But um, he, I like... The Republicans, like, they've had it unanimously, I think, feel rejected by the, the public of the United States. And they've pushed it. Um, they made it an issue. I don't think for a lot of people it is an issue, even in the United States. I, I certainly think it's, it's a minority on both sides that are sort of very militant about it most people have a very grey area around it it depends where they fall into the grey area I think given the size of the grey area on the issue it's an incredibly brave person that seeks to try to ban it outright because there's so many people who there's so many loopholes that you have to add in I think there's so many I mean this is just me trying to skirt around like any particular views on the subject that you may have that we may have but I mean it's a divisive subject I think it's not I think it's fair to say that the overturning yeah. of Roe v. Wade in a modern you know one of the most prominent democracies in the world was a regressive step I mean whatever you yes. whatever you think about 100%. you know Right, stuff. Like, and I myself am 100% pro-choice. I think it's one of these things that you have to be shocked by, and it you know shows actually the point that we often make when we discuss together. The point I make in the blog is that democratic rights, you know, are hard won, hard fought. You know, and yes, Roe v. Wade is a was a magnificent achievement, but ultimately a fragile one. It should have been enshrined in the U.S. Constitution by now. But ultimately, the only way to protect it in this in this country, we're lucky that you know we have an unwritten constitution and the fact that it's protected by an act of parliament and you know the, the majority opinion. But even then, you know, you can you can imagine it being overturned. So the other reason I, I don't want to I don't want to skirt reviewing. This is just a slight segue here. We look at Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. Mm. There was a Republican sweep of that state, but interestingly, 
his stance on abortion is more nuanced than many conservatives. So, for example, he proposes an abort- a, a you know a 15-week limit, which is a, roughly, apparently, according to the New York Times, where most Americans poll at. Yes. So, you know, I'm not as you say, there's a lot of grey area. It, it's very crass and unfeeling to put down a marker in this debate and say this is where people are at. But generally speaking, you know. Americans don't support outright balanced abortion. So, within the context of Roe v. Wade, I appreciate this is, this is a difficult question. Is does that kind of issue of Roe v. Wade that a more nuanced conservatism that Americans are looking for, rather than just of the outright pro-lifer ban abortion limits? And does that mean that a candidate like Ron DeSantis, who is still, by the way, very Trumpian some of his values, but is also a conservative's conservative as well, mean that the thing that's worried me that since this has been announced, a lot of the media have been like, oh, he's not Trump. So the implicit thing has been, has been that Ron DeSantis and Trump, so that's great, but we don't really focus enough on what he thinks as well. He's still very conservative, but he just has slightly nuances in the views over things like, well, big ticket items like abortion compared to the D man. I think the Donald. I think the problem that we've had over so many years now, so many years, about seven years now, is the constant black and whiteism of politics, and that when we're looking at Ron DeSantis as a kind of anti-Trump figure. And not thinking him as somebody who's incredibly... It, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's an acolyte who doesn't think you should be rude to people. Is essentially... A decent odd man as well, yeah. I heard as well. I mean, I, I don't think... I don't think for Republicans he's a winning candidate. I think the necessity of Trump not running makes him a, a necessary candidate. But, um, I mean... To, get, to, to focus on Trump for a, a second because we've been promising it we have, we, we have, we have, we've zeroed in on him at last and gone for the prostate as it were he put up numerous candidates who have failed he has lost how many elections? three yes. now um, he's well two U- US presidential US um, I mean he didn't, didn't do well in his midterms either but uh, we'll say three three's good yeah and then, Some of you um, may say fake news, I say go away. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he would say fake news regardless of fake what you news, said anyway. Unless you said he was great. But, I mean... You know me better than that. <laughs> yes. You know me better than that. I mean, you know, Trump has stifled debate within the Republican Party. And if he wants to be elected, I... I don't particularly want them to be elected but if they do want to be elected they need proper primaries and I think they need to work out a way to have a debate and to have actual discussion without it being about whether or not Donald Trump lost in the previous election and whether or not Donald like too much of the debate has been on Donald Trump's terms and like well, surely the best Nobody. thing they can do in the short term, the best thing that can happen is that you talked there about, so there were over 300 candidates on the ballot in this league midterms who were so-called election advice who subscribed to this utterly false, completely fabricated narrative that Trump 
you know, lost. You know, Trump didn't lose the 2020 election. It was, you know, it was voter manipulation. It was, you know, actually, he won it. Actually, yes, he did poll record votes, but Joe Biden polled 8 million votes more than he did. There were still 125 election deniers who've been elected on this round of votes as well. But surely this has to begin with those Republicans in Congress who were complicit in endorsing Trump in the first place. Kevin McCarthy in the House, Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Get them out of those positions and put sound, sensible Republicans in there. Dare I say it, the Liz Cheney's of this world. Into those leadership positions in the House. I mean, but, you know, Liz Cheney's gone. And it's like, she is, know, but there must be others who are less brave than she was. I, I think, I think people overlook the fact that getting rid of Republican mainstream at the moment I think leads you into Trumpism and that, See, that is is, that, that is, is, it Trump, is, Trumpism, is Trumpism the Republican mainstream is that where we're coming from now I I don't think it is the Republican mainstream I don't think it's the Republican mainstream among voters I think it's the Republican mainstream among actual members who will actually turn out in the primaries. Which we've primaries. seen in this country with arguably less extreme Corbynism, you know, the Labour Party yeah. as well. It, I mean, it is all, it, it is essentially, I mean, it's probably a subject for a completely different podcast entirely. But it is that idea of, it's nationalism and tribism. People pick the person who shouts the loudest for your tribe the loudest for your particular like section of society and will back him no matter what happens. Oh. Donald Trump is not a normal president and was will not be a normal candidate. But he is he has got a very good chunk of the blame for why US voters who are not particularly wedded to Republicanism or him in particular who were particularly happy to vote around, like as has been shown throughout US history, um, he's the big reason why a lot of, they haven't done them as well at the midterms as they thought. Which I is mean, historically you know, aberrant, and I quite, I, know, I completely agree. Trump, Trump should be seen for what he is—a complete loser. Yeah, and absolutely, it, you know, you, you know, aberrant circumstances in 2016. You know, he was a one-term president. I mean, which is a nominee in itself. You know, no. good, good grace to f off and not come back. Um, the mistrust of the U.S. politics. Oh, scene. There you go. Forty-four days, four <laughs> years. Wish it had been forty-four days for him. Uh, All right, four's in it. So. Okay, so I'm gonna. Okay, we could talk about the human prostate more. We're gonna draw a line under that. We're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna come back and talk about Twitter. Right, Liam, I feel that we've moved from one sort of prolapsed anus to another now. We're going to be discussing um, Elon Musk. Now, for the record, I'm not a fan of Elon Musk here. I know some of you may think he's this great visionary, and I'm sure, you know, I've been in a Tesla car, and the reason I don't like it is that whenever I've been in a Tesla car, my head bangs up the ceiling. For context of this, I'm six foot three, so my head bangs up the ceiling of this you know, electric wearing contraption here anyway. But, Liam, I digress. Elon Musk, besides making penis-looking rockets that land themselves, has bought Twitter. Why is this important? Because um, it's Twitter. I mean, I'm sure you all use it. Uh, 
Um, I mean, I'm on Twitter. You know, yeah, all eight hundred listeners of this podcast follow me on Twitter. I'm sure. I, I vaguely um I wouldn't bother following me because I don't really like Twitter. You better believe so, I'll follow me. You know, I have uh, very witty things to say. Anyway, come on, so Elon Musk on Twitter. But I mean, it's just a it's just a staggering deal, isn't it? I mean, forty-four billion dollars. Forty-four billion dollars on Twitter. The world's was it tenth most popular social media platform. But in defence of Twitter, it is used by a lot of influential people. A lot of people, if you want to say things like politicians, so this is yeah. this is me parodying Lewis Goodall here, but parodying Lewis Goodall here from News Agents, good podcast. Please give it a listen before this, after this one though. Um, politicians, celebrities, Elon Musk himself are on Twitter. They want to say things, they put it out there on Twitter. They use yeah. it as a platform, used by a platform by a lot of influential people. It, it is. Including it is. the human aid collapse as we've just been discussing Donald Trump. Yeah. And, like, to be honest, I kind of feel like Donald Trump is probably the most important person in Twitter's Twitter's history so far. Sorry, Twitter. I think I think I think he kind of kept it alive. I mean, everyone influential is on Twitter, which is true. Apart from Donald Trump now. Yeah, it's just members of the public aren't. But that's the reason that, but that, I suppose the reason that, you know, we don't want to make all that Trump, but the kind of reason that Musk has kind of come in is that he claims that the sort of measures that Twitter's got in, you know, Twitter's oversteered in recent years, he says, on disinformation, on control of content, on control of users, and de-platform people that shouldn't be there, Donald Trump being a notable example, but other people as well who have propagated theories, you know, and, you know, the, you know Musk has come in and pledge to kind of restore it to a free speech utopia. This, this sounds like a wonderful idea, doesn't it? It sounds like a great thing, you know, this platform is going back to what it should be about, which is about, you know, cat memes and uh, calling your grandmother a slag. I think I think the problem is is that, like, Twitter, no matter which way you look at it, has been completely overtaken. It's like, if you talk to anybody, I mean, I, very interesting, I, I saw some very good data on Twitter's popularity. And it was rated by um, Gen Z, so people under the age of about 26, 25. I'm um, aware of Gen Z, yes, yes. I, I'm aware, I know of them, yes. Above the age of about 14 or 11 or so, early teens, yep. so not Gen Alpha who are children, but um, it is the lowest rated, it is the lowest rated of all... Um, social media platform. Yeah, but what's a Gen Z now? I've been on TikTok. I've seen the shit they post on there, you know. But surely they should be listening to us, the wise generation, you know, who, who said just defame each other openly within 280 characters. This has always been the problem with Twitter, is you get 140 characters, which means you can't say anything. 280 now? 280, but you still can't say anything. You can't see it, say anything nuanced in that figure anyway. And... Like, I mean, it was 140 before, and it was crap. And it was 280 now. It's still crap. Yeah, you're still on it. I'm still on it, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> I, I don't mind if I have to delete my account. Well, there it's, we go. It's, I mean, it's just the folly of him buying it for so much anyway. But it is Borrowed also, money as well. Borrowed money. I think the most interesting thing, actually, is that I don't think he's actually too far wrong in these, um, what he thinks the problems with it are. 
Well, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. So yeah. You know. I mean, I don't feel his solutions are the best ones. Well, but he's bought a dying social media platform that I don't think will exist in ten years. One that, let's take one thing that he's tried to put in place. So he tries to do paid verification for those of you who aren't yeah. on Twitter. You can have what's called a blue tick, and this is the idea that say that you know you are the Liam K or the Mike Indian or you know the Donald Trump on there. It's, 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 it's the mark of like your quality control, effectively. Elon Musk tried to monetize it, now, and effectively, you know, Twitter needs to make money. Like a lot of these social media platforms, yeah, it's been invested in heavily, but God knows how it makes money apart from advertising. So, it's, 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 what you're saying essentially, Elon Musk has essentially bought like a giant white elephant. I think he has. Yeah, I think he's. He, I think he's. Um, I mean, I know, know we're going to mention this in a sec anyway. I think he's created his own Qatar World Cup. Oh and no. It's, it's um, I mean the, the problem that I get with like he's removed verification for the blue ticks which was very stupid but he's, he's rolled back on that now though. He's he, roll. he has but he's had to yeah and my sacked half Twitter staff by email yes and then had to rehire some of them because they were actually important yeah and I mean a lot of it is just like it's quite clear he didn't want to buy it he was forced into buying it he decided that it'd be better PR to say that I bought it um, rather than it being forced into doing it by court and you know I mean I, but I don't think I don't think he's wrong that it needs to monetize somehow and what, what he's doing I think is it's very much a case of clutching at straws as we're going in real time but I don't think he's incorrect in saying that Twitter needed to change immensely quite why you couldn't have a blue tick in which you had verification in which they upped the price of how much you paid I mean I'm pretty sure like any news outlet would pay a grand to have their Twitter Twitter page verified yep same with any politician they'll yeah, they'll I mean that's up to the countries themselves to decide isn't that's it can, like, that's, that a can, that's, a can, that's a can of worms alright okay you've got three minutes left now I begrudgingly allowed discussion of football on this podcast because you know I am not uh, I have a fancy football team but it's more out of necessity than that so come on Qatar My World mate. Cup starts okay you've got, you've got your moment go uh, on essentially we're in a situation in which like countries are literally literally using football as a political tool which means it should definitely um, have a place on this podcast uh, but, you've got your moment just go for it but, don't convince me I mean we've got a we've got a World Cup which is being held in a country that has the population the size of Wales that is probably like the it is the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever seen in that we're properly seeing the the like the idea of nation states buying football clubs and buying football tournaments in order to promote themselves yes I think in fairness to the Russia bid I think it was the weakest bid out of the four bids that were put forward which um, I think off the top of my head I know the UK did so there is a little bit of bias there I will accept I know Spain and Portugal put in can't remember the other one so we'll skip past them and then um, there was Russia 
and Russia going in for it, it was very much to promote the idea of Russia as being a, a great nation state. And it kind of worked. It was a very good World Cup. I mean, you look at what, what Russia has done since, it should not have gone there in the first place. Equally, at a, that particular moment, there's an argument for why you could, in 2010, why you might have given it to Russia. Things. Qatar has never ever been a. Like, if you have a look at the average attendance for a football match in Qatar, how they're going to manage to scale that up to 60,000 seater stadiums, like, they're going to have to find a lot of fans who want to come from abroad. Most countries, it's normally the home crowd that is the main audience. But it's it's surely the biggest, I think, the biggest sports watching own goal in history. And I think it gives a little bit of a, a light for the future in that repressive regimes may think they're promoting themselves, but I don't see anybody actually talking about how nice Qatar is to go to. Do you, do you Mike? Do you, I mean, would I mean, would I mean, you go on holiday there? I mean, besides the targeted Google adverts, <laughs> I'm definitely re not receiving yeah. on, my, on a daily basis on my YouTube I mean, channel. I once YouTube a video about the Qatari World Cup. I mean, 6,500 people died building it. Uh, gay fans, if you go there, you're allowed to go, but as long as you're not um, yourselves. And they're having to very bizarrely sell and advertise alcohol despite being a country that vehemently bans it. How much a pint? You told me this at the start. £12 a pint. That should be a reason for the anyway. Maximum four, though. So, I mean, you may save money. Who knows? <laughs> or, or bankrupt yourself, anyway. <laughs> right. Do you, know, do you know what the what's up? I know very little about sport. From what you said, I draw one very firm conclusion from this. Yes. Do you know what that is? What is it? The World Cup should have gone to Wales. Liam, thank you very, very much there. I got the last word on that. Viva well. Cymru. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, thank you very, very much. We are out of time as ever we could have gone on and on and on and on we're going to try and do these more regularly dear listener uh, depending on the time I actually now have a stable kind of like sense of reality and job and whatever so um, thank you very much for listening the um, enjoy the World Cup as well just a quick final thought on uh, sport and politics I think they've always been inextricably linked and the, my mind goes back to the 1966 World Cup when uh, one Harold Wilson, who's uh, my favourite former Labour Prime Minister, late Labour Prime Minister, was photographed for the winning England World Cup team. Sport politics always are inextricably, inextricably linked. But fundamentally, there is always going to be a line. And fundamentally, people want to have an enjoyment and have a sense of wonder from these events and Liam is dying to come up with something as well. I, I just wanted to point out that England had only ever won a World Cup under a Labour government. So, Sir Keir Starmer, <laughs> you now know what you have to do to win the next Arsenal England season ticket holder, it should be said. Sir Keir Starmer, this is an appeal, this is a shout out going to you from us here. We are, by the way, recording this in the lovely viaduct pub in the city of London, I believe. We are. Yes, yes. We we can see some polls. We can see some polls. So just to give you a sense of where we are, we haven't told you so far. Sir Keir, please, in the next Labour manifesto, commit to bringing 
the beautiful game home I've been Mike Indian thank you very much for listening you can find the us online I am at Mike underscore Indian on Twitter and Liam is hopefully not on Twitter at the time <laughs> we'll see <laughs> Liam underscore K anyway. Liam underscore K you can find us at the Groucho Chelsea at www.thegroucho.uk until next time stay safe look after yourselves and we'll see you very soon